0: welcome to the heart of england speakers podcast my name is pierre and i'm your host please come join us online or in person this time the first and third tuesday of the month for all details please go to our website heartspeakers.org.uk today i have a very special guest she is one of the best speakers we have at heart of england and she always packs her speeches with a lot of emotions. So I'm really happy today to have on the podcast Deb. Hello, Deb.
1: Hello, Pierre. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a huge honor in such an amazing club with so many incredible speakers. Ah,
0: it's a real treat for me to have you on the podcast. So thank you for accepting. All right. As I always tell my guests, we always start at the beginning. So Deb, where are you from?
1: I'm from South London originally. About South London from Greenwich. And um, I had the strange experience of visiting in 2015, after many, many years, um, when for my mother's funeral, and when I got there, I thought, I was born in such a beautiful place. And Tony was walking with me going, this is stunning. I thought, you know, South London always gets bad press, just such a gorgeous place 10 minutes from Greenwich.
0: Oh, very uh, nice. <laughs> so, what did you uh, study at school, or uh, you know, what did you study?
1: Um, I well, my school career wasn't brilliant for personal reasons. I was—I actually loved school more than I can tell you. But I was born in the day and age, believe it or not, young ladies. When educating a girl beyond the age of sixteen was considered to be a complete, not a waste of money. So, I was taken out of school at sixteen. And my mother loved her heart. I was very angry with her for many years for it, but she made me learn to type. So I landed up in admin. And all right, I've got the glorious ability to type at 98 and a half words a minute, 97.3% accuracy. Wonderful. But it led me getting trapped in admin. And then this is a lovely little story to think about your parents more as you get older. I suddenly remember my mum who worked in a factory saying, oh, Debbie, she said, the ladies that are secretaries, they wear high heels to work and they have nail polish on and their hair's beautiful and their makeup. And I suddenly realised that my mum's cruelty had been to take me and lift me to something she truly aspired to and thought was wonderful. And it's amazing when you get a little bit of perspective on life, you realize actually your parents were doing the best they could. And I've held on to that. From there, I landed up in ambulance service admin and I thought, well, that's handy because I'm a hypochondriac. If people keep talking to me about illness, I might get kind of inured to it. I discovered later after I met Tony, I'm not a hypochondriac. I'm a medical empath, which means sometimes when I'm with people, I'll suddenly think there's something wrong with me and I'm picking up on their headache or their bad shoulder or something like that. But oh, it took me to work that one out. Um, the ambulance service was wonderful. I then went into administration in business and got myself into terrible trouble because there was this major crisis at work and everybody was running around screaming because uh, an invoice had gone missing. And they said, why are you not running around screaming? I said, well, one, I'm going, I'm looking for the invoice and two, nobody's going to die. And they went up the wall. And when they came down, I said, do you realize in the last job I was in, a mistake could kill someone? I'm sorry. I, I can't take this that seriously. And I found the invoice. So, but that was a, a dichotomy I had for many years, having been in the health service. And to me, people are so precious. And for them to be healthy and happy is, that's my zenith. Everything I do is to try and help people feel better than I ever did when I was young. And I, I just could never ever um, settle myself in what business thought was a drama. It just never worked for me. So it was quite interesting. And then, bless Tony's heart, he sent me back to university when I was 39 um, because he knew my dream had been to have a degree. And that was a very interesting process, which I don't know if you want to come back to, but I learned a lot there as well. And then having done two degrees because my first one sadly didn't work okay
0: I, hold on what did you so what for uh, what course of study did you do the first time around
1: first degree was history okay and my father died in the middle of the second year and i dropped all my marks by five percent i just and okay. i managed to scrape my first back in the last semester they sent all our work out to extern, and I was one of the ones that was always sent out to extern. It wasn't hard for me to be good at history. I loved it. Um, and new external invigilator decided the entire department was marking too high, clobbered the lot of us, so I couldn't do my PhD in history because they said on the form, you can do a year's work, it will cost you £2,500, and, yeah. and if you come in on a 2-1 degree, we put them in the bin. We don't even look at them. We haven't got time. So that was that dream. Nice. Tony, um, My graduation ceremony had Tony sitting on the edge of his seat because he said, please don't let the head of the university speak to you or you're going to tell him what you think. And he did. And Tony said, I went, why? And your mother and I were holding hands, but I was good. So I lost my temper and went and did a computing degree. Wow. And discovered that I can do everything except program and the way into a computing degree is programming into a computing career is 90 percent programming i'm sorry i'm a writer it's punctuation i can't see it
0: i think this is one of the reasons why i love to do this podcast because you get to know people on the level that you know in a casual conversation you don't really know so those things about you are fascinating i mean obviously you type faster than my mom and my mom was pretty fast and now you had a history degree and you know, a computing degree and i think that's fascinating absolutely fascinating okay so you have your computing degree so go on
1: yeah, yeah i'm it's good because i can find my way around a computer and that helps yeah got a good job then tony and i both got made redundant on the same day mm. I landed up back in admin, and I was heartbroken. And this, for me, is a really important piece of learning for my life. This is where I learned something vital about work. I'm in admin, but I'm at the Bath Rehabilitation Unit. And they discovered, this is going to surprise you, that I'm good at talking to people.
0: That yeah, is a shock.
1: The problem they had was the shattered families. People a lot of people don't know about a traumatic head injury or brain illness. Is one person has an accident and another person wakes up, they are literally not the same person. They can be utterly different. It's like there's a total stranger in front of you that is still your son that doesn't remember you, doesn't want to listen to you, isn't interested in you, and everything's gone. And the families were heartbroken, and I turned up to be good at talking to them, and. That was the most magical, most tragic, most heartbreaking, most incredible place to work. But what I would say to anyone, it isn't what you do for a living. It's if you care about what you do. That's what makes a difference. And I cared there. Admin didn't care. Did it happily. I cared. And Mm -hmm. I know with you and your job, you love what you do, don't you? It interests you. Well,
0: you know, for a little story, I was made redundant. A uh, couple of weeks ago, so oh, I yeah. I completely understand where you come from, and it did me make me think about well, okay, what do I like? It's the thing that Elon Musk likes to talk about. You go back to first principle, right? So, what do you like to do? And to me, it was, came back to the same thing. I like to do cars, and I found a job where a new job where I, I still do cars. So, so it's test- good.
1: Yep. and you work with something you love, and I believe it was Confucius who said, "You'll never work a day in your life." Indeed. Mm. Yeah. So, at
0: this point, you and Tony are still—you are still in London, then, right?
1: Um, I'm sorry.
0: Are you still in London? You're still in London at this time when you were made redundant.
1: Um, no, we were in Yorkshire when that happened.
0: Oh, you did. You were okay.
1: Yeah, it was triumph and disaster. Black belts in the April redundancy, in the May. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's something else. Uh, something else about you. You and Tony are martial artists.
1: Yeah. Well, well, I'm very much retired. Um, but I don't Tony, believe
0: you. You never retire as a martial you, artist.
1: You've got the skills, but you you're not a fool. Practice is critical. But Tony has two black belts: hapkido and taekwondo. And I just got the one in taekwondo, which was nothing short of a miracle. Um, when I went in there, my my instructor said I was always the student he was the most proud of because I'd come from so far behind. And when I rang him and said my husband wants me to do this, he said, "And um, are you athletic?" I said, "I've never done anything that can't be done in three inch stilettos." He said, "We we train in bare feet. That is not happening." <laughs> So when we got there, I looked in the room, and they're making this incredibly embarrassing noise, and I thought, I can't do that. And I said to Tony, I'm not going in. So Tony said, yes, you are, opened the door, and went bang, because we did it, because we were nearly mugged in Bristol, and I froze, and he knew what to do. So he said, that's it, you're training as a martial artist. I froze, because I didn't know where he parked the car, but that's a different story. So he shoves me in the room, and I literally entered... You know, almost on my nose. And then I discovered, because Tony is married to a real Moo, then I discovered that the first person who walks into the room is always the senior student. And our instructor pegged me straight away, and he said, so your wife will always stand above you at at Taekwondo. So right through, and I got my black tag first. I, I was always a senior student and never let him forget it. But one of our funniest stories was we were doing an exercise where you punch towards someone and you have to move your head because people think of defense all the time. But the first one is to get your head out of the way and block. So we're doing that. And Tony punched me on the nose because I didn't move my head. And without even thinking, I slapped him straight across the face. I said, don't you dare hit me. Instructor came and I went over. I said, I'm so sorry. He said, I'm relieved. Because I always wondered if you were under pressure, could you defend yourself? He said that wasn't a good defense, but it was immediate. Just let me train you to do it properly. now.
0: The picture we have of you, Deb, is absolutely fabulous. I mean, you have so many facets to you. So it's uh, pretty incredible. I wouldn't mess with you, to be fair. Nope, ain't no better.
1: My children, especially girls, I don't care. You're doing martial arts. You can throw any tantrum you want but you're doing it because it <laughs> where do you think i got part of my confidence to stand up in front of tony yeah
0: that's a huge that's a i did some judo so i know a little bit so yeah it is a huge confidence booster no i agree okay yeah. so now you and tony are in warwickshire so then what
1: we're over the border we're in worcestershire do you mind <laughs>
0: yes nice okay so one so when does, as I always talk about, the Toastmaster journey, right? So when, the, when did that start for you? Because I know it's a, it's a really long, are a few chapters in there. So let's say, all right, what well, is chapter one? When did that start?
1: Where did we start? I would, I wrote a play. Um, my amateur dramatic group put it up on the stage, and it went down very well. And then I broke up my first marriage, and that cost me my entire family and about 98 friends. Um, My ex-husband was very manipulative. I didn't realise he was psychotic and he knew how to turn everybody against me. And uh, two friends and a counsellor I saw said, once he's destroyed you with the family, he'll destroy your family. And when I went back from my nan's funeral, there was nothing left. He destroyed my entire family and it was heartbreaking and it never repaired. It was absolutely awful. So. I'm going to write another play. And my friend who helped me said, why don't we set it in the ladies' room of a nightclub? I said, well, big problem. I met Peter when I was 17. I've never been to a nightclub. So we started going to explore them. And I hated the down at market ones. I'm sorry, dancing on sticky floors and having drunk men coming at you. I do apologise, gentlemen, but you can appreciate I was newly single And I wasn't ready today. I I was nowhere near there. So I said to her one week, no, she said to me, we've got to take you to the expensive places. It's no good. Read a list. And I said, Blue Orchid. I love the sound of that. And this was in Croydon. And she said, yes, the most expensive nightclub in Croydon. I said, right, I'll pay. So in we went and I said, I am not talking to anyone tonight. I'm not being chatted up. I've hurt my back and I'm not dancing. This is research. And she said, fine. Then this guy came over and dropped. dead gorgeous, does not begin to describe him. This was not Tony. He had shoulder length, glossy black hair. He was part Jewish, part Pakistani, so his skin, everything about him, huge brown eyes. And he said, hello, ladies, do you ever watch Neighbours? And we said, well, sometimes, yes. And he said, well, that's good. Because I've got two friends over there, one's an Australian, one's New Zealander, and they want to meet you. By the way, nice legs, Debbie. You'll have men all over you by the end of the evening. I thought this is not good news. He said, "So can I bring them over?" And I said, "No." Wendy said, "Yes." And when he went, I said, "How could you?" And she said, "You've got to have the experience, Deb, if you want to write about it." What
0: That's I didn't, true,
1: Joseph had gone over to Tony and John and said those two ladies there stop me and they want to meet you too. So this guy comes over, he's got red hair. He's got a parting and his hair, 1950s New Zealand style. And his trousers, we used to say, had an argument with his boots. You could see that much talk. And I thought, he's got red hair, he's short, and who dressed him? And he sat down and said, hi, I'm Tony. Have you ever been to Rome? And my world just stopped dead. And I just thought, it's you. And I didn't even know what it's you meant. And he said on our second day, all he could remember was my voice and my eyes. And the eyes are the windows to the soul, and the voice is your resonance. And but the moment he spoke, and we've been together ever since, that's it. You know, and it was it.
0: <laughs> oh, that's a nice story. Very Despite nice. Despite
1: the arguments. <laughs>
0: very very nice okay so you did the research for your play so then what
1: i do apologize Pierre. you know my hearing sometimes
0: no no that's all right You've made so how did your research for the play go obviously it went well with tony so how did the rest go
1: <laughs> yeah um i didn't get it i'm really sorry
0: no you said you went to the club did some research for to write a play oh, Is that what you okay.
1: said yes yeah. i never wrote the play
0: um, well, you got write- something out of it.
1: Yeah. Um, I didn't write it. I never got round to it. Tony completely distracted me for at least 10 years. Tony. Yeah, exactly. Um, there are some funny stories there, not suitable for a podcast. Um, but I, my writing really collapsed after that because even though I'd met Tony and this side of my head, I was overcome with joy. And that side of my head, I'm trying to work out 17 years with a psychotic, no family. No job, because I got made redundant, so I lost my job. Couldn't buy a flat, I was going to be homeless. The whole family said, no, we won't take you, can't take, cats won't take you. And I'm thinking, I literally, I'm going to be in a cardboard box with my cats in a basket, but I'm keeping my cats. And Tony said, well, look, move in, my flat's on two levels. If we don't get on, you can live on the top level and move out when you can because I'm not sure I can deal with your cats. Two nights later, when my my family thought it would be hilarious to bring my ex-husband to see our new flat, deliberately with the intention of causing trouble, which is something he would have worked out very nicely, my cat Marby came out from behind the sofa for the first time in two days because, of course, she knew him. And I knew Tony and I were going to make it when the front door went bang. And I said, Are you annoyed that they brought Peter over? He said, I couldn't give a toss, but she's my cat and she had no right to come out to him. I thought, We're going to make it. Two days, she's my cat. This was the man who couldn't deal with it. And they were one and two of 12. So,
0: very, very nice.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I didn't really write again until I wrote Who Am I, Where Am I, What Is This Place, which took 20 years in all. And that's really my life story told us how I changed to deal with it because I didn't fancy a book that was moan, moan, complain, grot, bitch, swear, curse, full stop, next chapter. And I thought I'm going to write it with and apply the lessons that I learned through my spiritual journey in the book. So there's snippets of my life story only when I have to to exp- to show people this is what I got over doing this. Um, and that was the next time I wrote. Now I've got three books on the go, but suddenly the poetry's come back, which is absolutely rather wonderful. Did you see when I did I Am? Yes. Yeah. And that was when it started coming back. That was the first thing I thought I want to do of performance poetry. Um, it was there. So, yeah. Uh, rather wonderful you're a woman of
0: many talents Deb so when did you first uh, join Toastmasters
1: the officially the first of December 2016 we attended the meeting a fortnight before and we sat there with the club absolutely awe-inspired I mean the people we were up against and actually that's Steve Day Rachel McNitter to name but three and a lot of the ones have left but Oh, my gosh, it was a strong club when we joined. And they said the next night, do you, do you want to come back to the second meeting free? No, we're joining. We're in. That's it. And it was just the most,
0: yeah. How did, you, how did you hear about it?
1: Um, Tony somehow got hold of Snat's card. Oh, wow. He'd, he'd wanted to join Toastmasters for 20 years. But when we lived in Glastonbury, which is where we went after Trowbridge and Wiltshire, odd place for a medium to live i know um when we lived in glastonbury the nearest one was north bristol which is, was two hours on a good journey you know and we couldn't get there so the minute we were up here it was toastmasters 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 oh well, for god's sake we'd better join you know and he got some that so yeah
0: yeah you were t- you mentioned uh, your icebreaker to me can you describe that for us
1: It was interesting, actually, because I was nearly 60 when I joined Toastmasters. And of course, you're thinking, what snippet of my life do I pull out? Um, For many reasons, the first 50 years of my life were not easy. And every good thing that happened had a a kicker behind it. Both my, my weddings were ruined by attendees and things like that. And I don't think about those things anymore. It's pointless. But I'm thinking, what can I take? I thought, well, why don't I go with how on earth I became a public speaker? So I started when I was born and went to my grandfather's death when I was six, which defined my entire life. And I kept going up and I had things like getting the cats and um, I don't know why that was important. I think that was just the early life phase. I'm remembering back to 2016 now. And um, I went on and I suddenly realised how many things in my life, such as going to university to do English and creative English, finding that I creative English create, the tutor said, you can write. You really wanted to know how to get published and we don't cover that. Um, and with English literature, I found it destroyed books for me, trying to work out why someone wrote that about ants. Instead of just enjoying that description and staying in the flow of the book. Um, And so I was talking to my creative English tutor and she said, well, your elective is history, which is the best degree for a writer, because you'll learn to research and you'll learn to be right. Which is why I don't think that I know anything, because one thing history teaches you is you don't know anything. There's always something else to be revealed. Um, And I get into history thinking, great, history exams, going to love it. And they said, and of course, we don't do exams. We do 40-minute seminars with your tutor interrupting when they feel like it to ask questions and the group. Oh, great. So I worked out my first seminar, and I got sent out the room while they discussed it. And when I came back, my friend said, I'll tell you what happened when we had coffee. I said, was it any good? Because he didn't feedback. He said, yeah, you were fine. And what, so I said, well, what, what, was, what was wrong? What did I do? She said, no, he got you out the room to say to people, because I was the first seminar up in that year. Please, I don't expect that from anyone. That wasn't a seminar. That was a performance. And I thought, oh, so, so I did all right then. And she said, that, that was brilliant because I did the Schlieffen plan, the German battle plan for World War One. And I 7 Brian said, I'm not allowed to do this and go into too much detail. But I do have a box with all the names of the people that are under the desk if anyone wants to read it. Because that's just my sense of humour. And that's how I use nerves to break my, the ice. Um, it just went from there. And I, I loved doing it. So history lecture was like a dream come true. Unpacking history, showing people how it applies to today is where I met the wisest and most incredible person I've ever met in my life. And he very much became my guiding star. If I'm a decent person, if the Karma car is a huge part of why, you know? Um, yeah. And when I worked it all out, I decided I'll get little wooden blocks and do a little picture on each one because we didn't have, I don't think we had access to a screen at the time. And I looked at the blocks and then I wrote T-O-A-S-T and so on on the back of each block. And it ended with, which led me to Toastmasters, <coughs> turning each block round exactly where I'm meant to be. And the number of steps that I felt from being born to getting to Toastmasters was the same number as the letters in Toastmasters. And that was a bonus I didn't expect. But I think as well, it it says to me, always be creative in your thinking when you do a speech, whether it's business, what it is. Is there a wrinkle? Is there a twist? Is there something that little bit unexpected you can put in that will just get your audience back after a few minutes of people like me rabbiting them? (laughs)
0: No, that was really good. Thank you for that. So you've done uh, a few roles at Toastmasters, haven't you? Can you describe uh, your experience?
1: Um, I did Vice President of Membership, which I absolutely loved. I loved that role. Um, I got uh, the Fish Out of Water Award that year for growing the club by so many members. And I thought I didn't do anything. All I did was they rung me up. I told them why I loved it. They came along and the club made them stay. You know, it wasn't me that made them stay. It was exactly the same as for Tony and I. It was what they saw in that room and the potential for the help in that room. That's what made the people stay. So I was, you know, being praised. And I thought this easiest job I've ever done in my life, just get them to see my fellow (laughs) Toastmasters and sit back and drink water. And then Steve Day and I, Steve was VPE, Vice President Education. And we both wanted to stand for president. And Steve is a really good friend. And I said, no, you've done the most difficult job in the club, which is VPE. I think it would be a good idea if I did that and I'll stand next year. So and that felt really fair. And I wouldn't have stood against Steve. He's my friend. And um, so I went to VPE and I caught VPE on the switch between the legacy system and pathways. And I got shingles, which was absolutely Yes, I didn't. When people said shingles hurts, I thought, yeah, it hurts. It really hurts. Ouch. Yeah. It makes you feel so ill for about six months. You don't get your energy back. So I'm switching. I'm dealing with the legacy system. I'm dealing with pathways. I'm dealing with shingles. And I really hated the VPE's role. I would go back into it if the club lost the VPE. I would have stepped back in like a shot and said, I'll take it on. I would highly recommend they took steve but i would take it on to help the club it's the only way you'd ever get me to do that role again i did not like it mm-hmm. and i then wasn't actually well enough to start stand as president so that's why i never became president but then who cares i was a member of the club and that's good enough but the roles as well are really good especially vice president education with what you've got to keep in your head it's a really good role for, you know, management, it really is.
0: Yeah, you, you got to keep track of a lot of things as VPE. So my hat's off to uh, Caroline on this one. She's our current Ooh. VPE. You also entered uh, a few competitions. Can you describe those for us?
1: Um, I did. <sighs> I loved the first one because the lineup was so strong. I just went in at club level and thought, no way am I going to place in this competition? Steve Day, Sinatra, Tony Brassington. Um, I think James was in it as well. But there were like five strong Toastmasters and me. So I was so relaxed, which was a benefit. And I came up with what is my favourite speech ever, which is Starship Toastmasters, because I believe in world peace. And ultimately, I'm trying to make everybody happy to get world peace. Yes, I know it's a big dream. I No, I'm not going to succeed. And no, I'm not going to stop. And I managed to see Toastmasters into world peace because I sincerely believe, if you know yourself, Pierre, a welcome guest walks into the room. Race, colour, creed, gender, religion, politics, none of it matters. Can we help that person get where they need to be in life? And you know that every time a Toastmaster succeeds, Everybody's pleased. You you win at a competition, you don't turn around and the other contestants are sharpening knives behind you. They're thrilled for you because you won. They support you through the rest of that competition. It is the most wonderful organisation and it needs to be spread a lot further and wider even than it is. And Toastmasters have done a remarkable job with that. No, I so, thought
0: that was uh, a really profound observation, actually. And because uh, yeah. I, I never thought about it that way. And the way you phrased it, because uh, thankfully, I was really lucky to see the speech. And I thought that was a really, really profound observation. Because, yes, we don't really care about your level, what you look like, what you do. You know, just come up and give a speech. We'll help you. And the way you we phrased don't... it was really good.
1: We're not interested if you're a good speaker. We're nope. interested if you came and you tried and you're giving it a go. And we love that. You don't have to walk in. We had Phil when I first joined and he, he was the first table topic. He became such a brilliant speaker on I mean, his third table topic. He went, I don't even know how I'm supposed to walk up to the front and answer that question. This has to be the most ridiculous thing I've ever been asked to do. And he got to the green light and he said, well, that's done and i and whoever was Toastmaster said, no, you haven't, because you came up to the front and you talked about it. And he couldn't believe it. And Tony, my husband, you know how good Tony it is as a speaker, he backed into the wall on his first table topic. He literally only stopped when he hit the wall. And everybody loves it because, wow, we can help this person. And we know in two or three months they're going to have forgotten today. You know, it's amazing. I love yep.
0: it. Not only did you win the club speech, but you went uh, pretty far. How was your experience?
1: Um, I got to division with Starship Toastmasters and I was very upset with myself. I let the occasion get to me and my nerves showed. And I was really, really angry with myself. Um, I, you know, I won that um, area with that. And I was up against the guy who was the area director last year and when I saw his speech, I just thought, I'm just going to relax. There's no way I can win this. And that's how I j- tended to get through it. So there's no way I can win this, just enjoy. Um, but when I got to division, I let the nerves creep in. Um, and it was, it was difficult. I was recommended to change the beginning and I had a Toastmaster in the room, not one of ours. The only Toastmaster. In six years, I'd had a question about, and I knew that if I changed the beginning, he would time it, and if I changed more than ten seconds, that he would request me to be disqualified. Oh, jeez! And oh, he would. Yeah, he used to carry um, a competition's rules around and stuff his mobile phone in your face to say the rules have been infringed fractionally. He was a very odd person.
0: <gasps> yeah, I can. I can. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I let that get to me instead of just doing my thing and i was cross because i think i could have done better for the club you know and that annoyed me because heart of england deserves a world champion that's a, a subtle hint there pierre but don't worry about it but heart of england deserves a world champion they really
0: <laughs> i am i'm completely I'm, uh, how do you say I relaxed about it that's fine one thing i meant to ask you actually
1: chance probably no one else has
0: Yeah. One thing I meant to ask you, um, your speeches always pack a lot of emotional punch. And I'm just, uh, and this might be a silly question, but how do you do it? Like, do you intentionally want to be stirring the emotion or you just like speak from the heart and that's what happens?
1: Right. What do you feel most strongly in your life? your thoughts about your love for your family or that heart-centered gut-wrenching love for your family you feel don't you Mm -hmm. yes i'm quite deliberate i want the audience to feel what i'm saying in the field in which i work i say knowledge is not important we need the knowledge if it doesn't drop to the heart as truth it will make no difference to your life. So yes, I aim for the heart when I'm speaking. I don't aim to impress, and that is why I loved your speech. It had absolutely everything, but you aimed for the heart and you got it in such a light-handed way. And that's what you have to try to do, is to get the heart. I recall when I was told you were doing a 15-minute speech on a part of a car, And I nearly didn't come. I mean, to me, the only interesting thing about a car is the (laughs) colour. It's a nice egg blue one yesterday and wanted it. You know, and I had to listen to this for 15 minutes. And at the end, I had a list of questions about this part for this car. Because you care about what you do and you get your audience. And I'd say to anyone, even if it's a business meeting, the board have got to care about what you just said not think the numbers add up yeah yeah i'm hearing this i'm feeling this this director this person they can deliver this i can put my strength my support behind them i can vote yes so yes it's quite deliberate
0: i think what the beauty of it is you make it look really effortless it's just like yes i'm speaking from the heart and there you go everybody yeah. in the audience is just
1: never Aw. talk about anything you don't care about the audience will know
0: yes the thing that's
1: cooking i would not have got a prize i promise
0: <laughs> no i think that's one thing uh, i know about you you're deliberate in your words and when you speak and uh, i think people really feel that and that's how they connect to you when you speak mm, yeah. so that's I think that's really good advice want if you...
1: You and the Toastmasters feel happier. So there's a real commitment from me coming to my audience. And people feel that as well.
0: They do. You
1: know? mm-hmm. They do. They are important in that room to me. They're the only reason I'm speaking. Even when I do a Toastmaster speech where people, um, a lot of people are practicing for business and things like that the only reason I'm speaking is in the hope that someone in that room will go out feeling better. It doesn't matter if it's in a competition. When I did the Starship Toastmasters at Division, one man came up to me and said, he took both my hands and he said, that speech will live in my heart forever. And at that moment I felt like a winner. He said, no, I will spread your word. I will talk about this. And in that moment, I felt like a winner. The only thing I had left was I'd let my clock down and that mattered more than anything, but that someone went out there and they spread that word. So even when I speak to you guys, I just want you to feel better, better about anything. You know,
0: I feel good. It's all good. And I think (laughs) ah, everyone who listened to that speech, I think, well, was really touched and will not forget. Um, I won't forget that speech because I, I, still... I
1: believe in, in inclusion more than I can possibly tell you. Skin is gift wrap. Gender is noise. We're soul. We're light. We're love. You know, skin is just gift wrap. And personally, I think I wear possibly the most boring gift wrap there is. You know, <laughs> really you know when people say, oh, white skin, I think, but it's not, it's... I don't know what it is, you know, <laughs> um, it's gift wrap. That was a speech I was going to do, actually, for the next competition. It's gift wrap.
0: I like it. Yeah. And this, unfortunately, brings me to, or uh, well, almost, you know, it's been a while, but I just want to talk about you decided not to renew your Toastmaster membership, unfortunately. Uh, can you tell us the why? Because I thought the reasons why was very interesting to me.
1: For a start, it was one of the hardest decisions I've ever made. I love Toastmasters. I back Toastmasters 100%. I would tell anyone I met to go to Toastmasters. The slight flaw in pathways on a very personal level is I'm a motivational, inspirational, spiritual speaker. And when you come to the electives at the end of um, levels four and five, I can't do most of them. And they're generic. They're on every pathway as far as I could see with the ones that would have suited me to do, which meant I was going to do one to four, scrap that pathway, one to four, scrap that pathway. So my progress got stopped. And then I started looking at the club and thought there are Toastmasters here for whom getting the distinguished Toastmasters level, I forget what it's called now, that will benefit them at work and Mm -hmm. it will benefit them in life. So every speech bracket I take up, I'm taking away from a Toastmaster who can make something of that moment that I can't make. And what's more, respectfully, please don't anyone think I'm saying, I'm a fabulous speaker. If I'm good, Toastmasters are at the bottom of it. They really are. I was good when I came in. And I've been speaking for 25 years, and I couldn't believe the improvement in three months just by being allowed to watch some of my fellow Toastmasters. That was all I needed. Um, And that inspired me to want to be better. But I sat in the club and I thought, I'm just taking up space, really. And I've done evaluations and I've done them so many times. And I went away to try and I missed everybody so much I had to come back. And I came back and I thought, no, I'm glad I have. I've tested this thoroughly. I've tried to come in with my fullest possible enthusiasm. I even wrote to Toastmasters about pathways and they did send me a lovely reply, but the fact is it is more corporately focused. At the beginning, that doesn't matter.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But the legacy system I far preferred because you could go to entertaining speeches and you could choose um, different pathways for specific reasons. Mm -hmm. And you anyone could make those work. And I'm hoping Toastmasters do listen, because I know they're being told it by more than one Toastmaster. But I could not say they ignored me, I've got a very thoughtful reply on that. But I don't think because they didn't know me, they didn't really fully understand where I was coming from. And I thought I'm taking up space, I'm worrying about every speech I do because someone could be. And I thought you could just stay as a person who can walk in and just do a speech off the top of their head if necessary which is something Toastmasters gave me the ability to do. Um, but also online wasn't working for me, which made the meetings hard. So all in all, I thought I'm not 100% enthusiastic and look, it's not right. So really sadly, Tony, as you know, work got in the way like me. absolutely love Toastmasters, but it's not a decision I'm pleased with, but it is a right decision.
0: No, and I think you bring up some valid points. If the pathway system is not working for some people, then maybe that system needs to be looked at. And I think it's, it's good to raise the issue and maybe you know, question if pathways works for everybody. I don't have the answer to be honest, but I think it's a good dialogue to have.
1: I think three or four new pathways and making the electives like engaging humour, Why do I need to run a meeting with with a volunteer group in engaging humor and bring engaging humor in? That could be stand up and develop and deliver a very funny speech. That could be going to a comedy club, something like that. They could they just need to tweak a little, it's close. And bear in mind they built a new system from the ground up. That took some doing. Yeah. Not
0: easy. So there's some, I'm sure there is some progress to be made, but I'm glad you're bringing up those points. They're really good points. Deb, I know you have one advice you'd like to give people at our club and please go ahead and do so.
1: Guys, online is not good for you. Senior Toastmasters who never used notes in their life were reading notes. And I fell into the same trap. Not often. Couple of times on one occasion, it was Tuesday morning and I realized i I've got a speech that night and having been vice president of education, I don't let my VPE down, I'll go in stone cold and look bad rather than leave my VPE with a gap. You're not learning to speak online. What's the thing most people are scared at? As Pierre knows, it's famous in our club. There was a study in America done 10 years ago, and death was the second biggest fear in life. Speaking in public was the first. If you don't walk into a room with people, if you don't make time to go to that meeting, Pierre once delivered a massive speech um, for his company. What if he'd have walked in and seen 200 pairs of eyes on him and he'd never been in a room and seen anyone look at him while he speaks? The dynamic changes Completely, the minute there are people looking at you, and the more people looking at you, the more it changes. Get in the room with your fellow Toastmasters. But also, I have another reason for this you are going to meet interesting, inclusive, amazing, fascinating, warm, welcoming, intelligent, incredible people. I've walked out of Toastmasters with real friends that I respect and admire a great deal. Don't ever miss being in the room with those people. Another thing you're going to miss if you're never in the room is how to move your feet. And it might sound silly, but speaking is done from the feet up. How you move, when you move, you can map a speech. I say this here, when I finish saying that, I go to there. And that reminds me what I'm going to say at that point. And then when I've finished, i go to there. And that reminds me what I'm going to say at that point. It's a ground up thing. So if you keep just going in online because it's easier to get home from work a bit late and nip in, you're going to miss 90% of what speaking is really about. And also you're going to miss some amazing people. So I hope that will do the one thing I've always wanted to do, which is leave my club with something helpful.
0: And that's been really helpful. I think, you know, obviously everybody is on Zoom these days. Everybody's online. So everybody picks up good tips, like looking at the camera, staying in the frame, discuss, you know, with your hands and your face, but nothing, and I mean, nothing does compare to, giving a speech in a room with everybody looking at you it is something that you need to do to improve a speaker and on that point I completely agree you
1: often here at evaluations I love the way Pierre came to the front he was completely confident he took a strong stance especially in business walking up like that I'm not even bothered that I'm doing this presentation at the moment if you want a job who's going to get the job? The one who just walked to the front and went, yeah, I know this is an interview. I know I've got a presentation and I know what to do.
0: Yeah. And on those wonderful words of advice, I think this is where we'll end our podcast. Deb, um, good luck to you and Tony. Uh, You will be missed. You are missed. Everybody texted you about it. As you know, you're one of our most you know gifted speakers you know mm-hmm. you really catch us on the heart and we'll miss you but i think you leave us with some great pieces of advice so thank you for coming on the podcast
1: you're more than welcome and trust me heart of england this is harder than you will know lots of love and success and wonderfulness in your life to all of you
0: thank you again so my name is pierre and i was your host for the heart of england podcast we meet online and in person. And as Deb said, please come in person the first and third Tuesday of the month. For all details, please go to heartspeakers.org.uk. Until <laughs> the next time, bye-bye. <laughs>